I'm Ben Weingarten. I'm Emily Jashinsky. I'm Josh Hammer. And I'm Rachel Bovard. And this is NatCon Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Brooke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. We've got four diverse and meaty topics, I think, to dive into today. And we're going to kick it off with Rachel, who will be discussing PayPal's latest foray into the misinformation policing game, which they then walked back. Josh will be talking about Judge Ho and several other judges' broadside against Yale Law School. Emily will be discussing recent revelations regarding what DHS Secretary Mayorkas knew about the purported whipping of migrants that turned out to be false and what he was saying to the media at the time he knew the truth of the situation. And then I'll be talking about the FBI's targeting of pro-lifers while pro-abortionists continue to get a pass. So with that, let's turn it over to Rachel first. Yeah, so in uh, your slice of dystopia for the week, uh, we're coming back around to PayPal, which I think I may have talked about a year ago because a year ago, PayPal announced it was partnering with the Anti-Defamation League and a host of nonprofit groups it wouldn't name uh, to police the ideology of its users. I did a whole monologue about this when I was guest hosting Hill TV's Rising because to me, this was a huge indication that PayPal uh, was about to weaponize the financial system and kind of foreshadow a lot of what we've seen as small incremental steps from the major banks. It was about to take this to a whole new level. And PayPal is, you know, I think people don't realize how dominant PayPal really is. It's the world's biggest non-bank lender. Um, it owns Venmo. Uh, tons of people use it as a primary transaction point to cash their checks. Uh, 31 million small businesses use it to facilitate their small business. So it's not you know, a, a small group that we're talking about. So PayPal upped the ante uh, last week by an, uh, a little known provision in their user agreement saying, oh, by the way, if you engage in what we deem to be spreading misinformation, we will debit $2,500 from your account. So basically they will steal your money if you violate uh, their term on, of misinformation, which of course is ill-defined. Now, there was a huge outcry uh, about this and PayPal announced it was walking it back, but Eugene Volokh, um, in over at Reason Magazine was talking about the fact that even though they've walked back the misinformation part, they still maintain provisions that say they will fine you $2,500 for promoting quote, discriminatory and uh, discriminatory uh, behaviors and intolerant behaviors, again, subject only to uh, PayPal's interpretation. So this is worth talking about because one, it's a horrendous policy, <clears throat> obviously from PayPal, but I do think it is beginning to foreshadow what I think is a very dark turn in American finance, which again is saying, uh, we will debank you or we will not act give you access to financial um, institutions, financial products, if you think or write or talk a certain way. Um, this is the weaponization of capitalism at a level that we haven't seen. But we've seen it at the top of the stack. We've seen it from social media companies. You know, we've seen it from service organizations, like even like Uber, but we haven't seen it at the sort of lower end of the stack, the things that facilitate the economy. And by cutting off users from accessing basic functions of the economy, you are literally weaponizing capitalism against the outgroup. 
Um, so I think the question is, what do you do about this? And I, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm seeking uh, for answers. Uh, the right, I don't think, has a lot of good ones. It's almost like you're dealing with a, a public accommodation issue at this point. Um, I did see uh, Rohit Chopra on C uh, CNBC this morning saying that uh, Rohit Chopra is the head of the CFPB, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, saying that his his agency is going to look into this because in his mind, he doesn't think that fintech, uh, financial tax, should be able to, you know, fine users for First Amendment protected activity. So that's an awkward alliance that may develop between conservatives and CFPB, two groups that normally don't like each other. Uh, but I'm, I open it up to the group because I, I'm really struggling for what to do about this development, and I'm worried it might spread. Well, I mean, this is the million dollar question of of the right's current approach to politics. I mean, um, you know, I think what first kind of came onto the horizon as kind of a technology-centric, kind of Section 230, perhaps, centric conversation three years ago has now morphed into a broader conversation about what we kind of the subjugated and dehumanized half of the citizenry that has kind of this state corporate fusion assaulting our, our way of life on a seemingly daily basis. What do we do about it? And I'm not going to pretend like I have all the answers either, but Rachel, I think you used a very key phrase there, which is public accommodation. I mean, uh, last month I was out at Claremont's Constitution Day Symposium, and I kind of gave a talk about common carrier regulation and technology and the Civil Rights Act. And the the paradigm, the conceptual paradigm that I think we on the right have to kind of take to this conversation is that platform access, financial services access, these are civil rights. These are these should be viewed conceptually, both legally and politically, to the extent that it is feasible, feasible or prudential. These are modern 21st century civil rights. And the same way that the Civil Rights Act was effectively kind of a public accommodation statutory remedy to obviously the moral abomination of Jim Crow, so too should we, from a legal perspective and really ideally from a policy perspective, from a legislative perspective, we should think about this uh, along the same lines as kind of the, the imperative to have a civil right to access and not be deplatformed, not be debanked. So what does that mean in concrete terms? Well, I mean, I, I think that kind of knowing what time it is, so to speak, on this issue, I think has to kind of get you to the conclusion that it is time to amend the civil rights act at this point to add uh, you know, political viewpoints, uh, non-discrimination as kind of an additional protected class. Now, look, I'm familiar with kind of the Chris Caldwell thesis, obviously, as far as kind of how the Civil Rights Act has been totally weaponized and the DEI bureaucracy. The problem is that we live in the real world, and there's just no putting this genie back in the bottle. So I think at this point, what the best that we can possibly hope for is trying to use this existing edifice and at least make it so that our own people are not kind of uh, subjugated and not just kept out of the basic means and channels of commerce and technology. And then common carrier regulation is, of course, kind of a natural kind of corollary to that as well. But I think those are the two ways that we have to approach this particular conundrum. I don't particularly want to hear about how Lena Khan is a Marxist um, in the face of challenges like this, because guess what else PayPal owns? Venmo. Um, you know, th this is how consolidation has given them the hubris to behave like this. Um, and we see the same thing over and over again, whether it's with Facebook and Instagram, it's whether it's with Amazon, the reason that they are so hubristic, um, you know, we, we can talk about all of the social factors, but consolidation has given them the cover 
they need to bulldoze our culture with their ideology. Otherwise, they would have to be way more responsive to market forces. And yes, the media pushes consumers to ignore um, or conditions them not to see these as problems. Uh, there's no question about it. But at the same time, consumers do still have power. And I think that was telling when you saw PayPal at least publicly try to walk it back. The only reason they did that is because there was huge uproar. And that means there are still market forces for corporate America to be responsive to. I think they're starting to realize that. You, you can see some of it with like Larry Fink and BlackRock and J Jamie Dimon, um, the way that they're kind of talking about these issues, at least publicly. Um, it, it's signals that they're worried about something um, and they're worried about something in the consumer base. And maybe they're worried about Republicans you know, taking business away from BlackRock and with certain state contracts, whatever it is. Uh, but that means consumers still have some power. So that's the good news. Uh, but I think, you know, to everything Josh and Rachel just laid out, that is going to mean um, prioritizing people like Lena Khan's stances towards uh, capitalist, uh, the excesses of capitalism and corruption in corporate America uh, over some of her different downstream ideologies. Um, and, and that's not to say those aren't concerns and, and you know, you shouldn't be watchful of where those are creeping into an agenda, but saying, hey, I'm not so concerned about Lena Khan, uh, you know, and Lena Khan's cultural conservatism or, or cultural progressivism, if her job is going to be uh, breaking up this insane consolidation. And one final point, there was one of the dissents in the Paxton net choice case was super interesting said basically none of the uh, law that we established in you know late 19th century early 20th century applies neatly here like even the common carriers I think that's very true and I understand dissenting on those terms but it means we're coming up with what that looks like um, and that's not a simple easy process but Republicans can't just pretend um, that it it doesn't exist um, and that you know anything that tries to grapple with it, is Marxism and is aiding and abetting the Marxist agenda of Lena Khan. So I'll toss it to Ben on that. But just narrowly on PayPal itself, it is worth noting, uh, as Eugene Volok pointed out, that still under the user agreement, PayPal says this, you may not use the PayPal service for activities that relate to the promotion of hate, violence, racial or other forms of intolerance that is discriminatory or the financial exploitation of a crime. Think about how the regime would define those terms, promotion of hate, violence, racial, or other forms of intolerance when they've cast half the country as semi-fascist, et cetera. And I think to that point, it's worth noting here. I mean, first, PayPal even considered putting this language in, okay? So even if they shouldn't, didn't mean to put it out, even if it wasn't the formal policy, they had thought about it, which likely means that everyone else in the financial services industry has thought about including analogous language just like this that could lead to the debanking and mass of people or the penalizing of people to the tune of potentially millions of dollars, because you're talking about here $2,500 per violation, not just $2,500 per violation. So this raises the scepter of the idea that anyone could debank if they hold the wrong ideas. Obviously, this extends beyond financial services to a whole slew of other services as well. But I think this is one of the most chilling forms of the weaponization of all of the regime's levers, public and private, against us. And by the way, would you be shocked if the regulatory, regulatory authorities themselves were promoting or at least had talked with companies about implementing these sorts of revisions. I certainly wouldn't be. So I think as with the big tech and the government, 
you have mutual admiration for these sorts of policies on both sides. And I would be, expect that regulators may ultimately push down this road as well, which is why there have to be viewpoint non-discrimination policies on the books. I, th I think it's ultimately the only way because that's where this slip, slippery slope ends up if it persists. Uh, so with that, let's turn it over to a different topic now and go to Josh on canceling the cancelers at Yale. It's actually really not that different a topic, actually. I mean, it's kind of the same idea of, of viewpoint non-discrimination, which kind of, I think, is the natural segue from our first topic to our second topic here. So in the interest of, of full disclosure, um, you know, this is a matter of public record. I mean, I clerked on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit for Judge Jim Ho. He was um, one of President Trump's first two nominees to the Fifth Circuit, along with, with Don Willett, helped kind of kick his chambers off. Uh, and one thing that Judge Ho has done really repeatedly over the past well, really, since he started in his judicial chambers, honestly, that first year that I was cooking for him, he has kind of taken he, he he has kind of taken the initiative to call out BS when he sees BS. Um, obviously, to the extent that he can do so within judicial opinions itself, he has done that, and in various speeches and so forth as well. Earlier this year, he kind of made a lot of headlines. He went to Georgetown Law School, and he was planning to talk about originalism, some kind of um, theoretical talk. He kind of switched at the last minute and kind of decried Georgetown Law School while speaking at Georgetown Law School for the way they handled the Ilya Shapiro controversy. And you know, his most recent talk, he was giving a talk at the Kentucky Federal Society conference uh, maybe two or three weeks ago at this point. And he basically announced that he is starting a new policy where he will not hire clerks from Yale Law School. Current Yale Law students are not to be affected. So this is only for kind of future matriculants there. Uh, to kind of just kind of give the lay of the land here, I had a couple of friends kind of message me about this and they said, oh, why, you know, why stop at Yale? Well, there's a, there's a few reasons as to why Yale is the most important here. First of all, uh, you know, Harvard Law School, University of Chicago, where I went, Stanford, there are a lot of elite legal institutions. Yale has been ranked number one every single year since the rankings came out in the 1980s. They place well above any other law school as far as kind of academic placements, Supreme Court clerkships, federal courts, appeal clerkships, you name it. Um, Yale is, I, I think, pretty indisputably on paper, the most quote unquote elite legal institution. Second of all, and more to the point here, Yale has probably been canceling and shouting down speakers at a rate that surpasses any other top tier institution. So my alma mater, University of Chicago, I think has actually been relatively unscathed, uh, not totally. I was actually personally there in April 2019 to see Eugene Kantarovich be shouted down when he was giving kind of an anti-BDS talk. But with some dispensations aside, they've been generally pretty good. Harvard, actually, to their credit, has been generally pretty good as, as well. Yale has not been. Yale has uh, just last year um, they, they they had a talk or a debate like on free speech and religious liberty. They shouted down uh, 11th Circuit Chief Judge Bill Pryor had a talk protested. They've been horrible on this. Yale is also the only other elite law school, by the way, and you can connect the dots here, that does not even have a single right of center constitutional theorist like whatsoever. There was really no right of center um, uh, professor there. So Judge Ho announced this policy and Aaron Sabirium of the, of the Washington Free Beacon then reported that 12 judges, both district court judges and courts of appeal judges combined, told him that they would join Judge Ho in uh, announcing they would not hire uh, future law clerks from Yale Law School. The idea here, the idea here, of course, is to kind of force change at Yale Law School. Um, uh, Judge Ho, I think, is well aware that one person cannot do this. So, I, personally, I think it's very important that these 12 judges now go on the record and go and publicly announce that. Uh, judge Lisa Branch of the 11th Circuit, who's a fantastic judge herself, to her immense credit, did go on record. She told Nate Hockman of National Review that she would be publicly joining, quote, her friend Jim Ho in announcing this boycott. So the the broader point here to kind of take it out of like the legal weeds here, the broader point is how we on the subjugated right 
how should we deal with the cancelers, with the boycotters, the people who want to kind of, uh, you know, nuke us out of existence here? And I, you know, I think canceling the cancelers is one obvious possible remedy here. I mean, this is kind of just, uh, I, I, I don't want to like distort Judge Ho's message too much, but my own personal take on this is this is kind of like a basic kind of application of the whole kind of rewarding friends and punishing enemies distinction that, that we talk about within the confines of prudence, within the confines of the rule of law and so forth here. And, you know, it's worth noting that there's no ironclad reason why this necessarily must stop at Yale. But again, the idea here is that because Yale punches so far above its weight, as far as kind of all the various prestigious rankings, as far as law schools, that if you, if you can possibly get enough critical mass to then seek and effectuate change at Yale law, then all the other institutions will, in theory, follow at least a little bit there. So there's kind of a lot that I just put on the table there. We talk about kind of a Yale in particular, kind of, um, uh, you know, the broader kind of canceling the cancelers. I'd I just be, be curious for, for your guys' um, your guys' feedback on that. I think what you started by saying is totally correct, that this isn't really that different of a story at all. And one of the similarities is that um, there's this response coming from not the market in this, but the sort well, I guess it is in some ways the market, um, but, but from people, stakeholders and people who can create incentives and shift incentives for places like Yale. Now, this is something not to blame Judge Ho at all. We were all sort of, or, or a lot of people were sort of behind on this, but like, this is a threat that should have probably been made good on 10 years ago. Um, and maybe even five years ago, things like that. Um, but I, I'm, I don't think the incentives were there for people to, to weigh in in the same ways. And I totally understand all of that. And it's very true that things have accelerated beyond what anybody would have expected in the last five years or the last couple of years. But that is happening now. Um, of course, my lights just went out in my office because of the automatic sensor. Um, but other than that, um, I think it's it's one of those stories that shows the incentives are shifting. Um, the incentives are shifting because people are sick of this. And that is extremely, extremely powerful. But of course, this is one of those factories for the, the ruling class and powerful people. And so it, this is not just like a minor sort of academic trivial story. This is uh, actually very serious. And it's, uh, I, I think, a very good sign in the right direction. Yeah, it was kind of interesting, you know, taking out even the whole concept of, of cancel culture, you know, people that were criticizing Judge How, I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think there was a piece in National Review, like criticizing him or somewhere else, somewhere else being like, well, you know, we're above this kind of thing. But at the end of the day, if you even look at the comments from other judges that Aaron interviewed and Aaron Siberian's reporting on this, what they're saying is not just, you know, we, we oppose the type of, of speech culture that's at Yale. They were also saying like these Yale engaging in this kind of, kind of behavior and the administration not tamping it down and, and almost egging it on in certain cases is creating bad attorneys, right? Like we don't want to hire these people not just because they're like free speech crazies, you know, they don't believe in speech at all, but like they're not getting a full rounded legal education and they're not prepared to walk into the legal arena in which case you or you know, where you can't just like cancel the person across from you, right? You can't say I'm triggered and I'm harmed and leave the courtroom. Like that's not how it works. So I think there's also just a case to be made that like, in addition to all of the speech issues, Yale's creating bad people who are not cr capable of managing the legal profession. But to Emily's point, like this has been the pipeline for them to manage the, the legal profession. So I think this it's a very brave stance 
by Judge Ho and others, one that I hope and I'm glad to see emulated you know, from other judges, because at the end of the day, wokeness isn't just like ruining America. It's also creating bad intellectuals <laughs> and bad and people that are bad at, at their jobs. So I think we also have to. And, and so from that perspective, this isn't cancel culture at all. It's just simply saying, I don't want you because you're not qualified. Well, the only thing I'd say is maybe it's advantageous if it's creating bad intellectuals and bad lawyers, but for the fact that some of them will also matriculate to become judges as well. So that that's the unfortunate aspect of this. But it could create a competitive advantage if all the elite institutions are creating the most non-elite in practice. Uh, but setting that aside for a second, um, I think it's worth noting, and this speaks to the point of you know, knowing what time it is. Judge Ho also put out a law review article that kind of builds on his remarks. And I just want to quote briefly from it in terms of the argument about essentially, well, you're stooping to their level. Like, aren't you engaging in cancel culture by canceling the cancelers? And he says this, there's this criticism that boycotting Yale amounts to viewpoint discrimination and retaliation. I don't know if this criticism is the result of extreme naivete or gross deceit, but either way, it misses something fundamental about the state of our world today. Viewpoint discrimination and retaliation are already occurring right now. And he provides numerous examples of it in this law review article. And I've explained why they're illustrative rather than isolated. So the only question for us today is whether we should just continue to suffer viewpoint discrimination and retaliation or put a stop to it. And so this has to be, I think, one tactic among many. He also in this law review article, addresses some other criticisms and basically says that for those who are talking about stripping federal funding from relevant institutions that don't re respect speech or for donors to pull their funds, he basically says, yeah, sure, all of the above, but this is the stand that I can take as a federal judge. Obviously, some other federal judges have been so moved as well. And I think it's important to note that one person in a prominent position boycotting one of, if not the most influential institutions in a particular field, can move mountains, can potentially effectuate a sea change. Schools don't like when they're directly attacked, particularly by prominent individuals, just like corporations don't like it. To Emily's point, you know, why is it that Larry Fink today bristles when he's he's accused of being a woke capitalist? What's well, precisely because there has been finally some holding of these institutions' feet to the fire. It doesn't mean that we're winning per se, but it does mean that they hear us. And given that all of these institutions have been captured by the left, I think in large part because they feared the backlash from the leftists, I think it shows that you have to fight fire with fire here. And so those who stick their necks out and courageously oppose these institutions, especially people in positions of power, uh, I think they ought to be celebrated, applauded, and more ought to step up in a whole slew of fields beyond the judiciary branch. Yeah, and really, really quick, and then let's send it over to Emily, if I could just put a button on this. This is going to fail if only Judge Ho and Judge Branch are the only two on-the-record judges here. So in order for this to actually succeed, you know, if, if by chance you're, you're an Article 3 judge listening to NatCon squad, come out, and come out, please, and join Judge Ho and Judge Branch. But Emily, over to you. I would love to know if there are... <laughs> <laughs> Any such judges listening to that con squad. Uh, so there's a story that actually just came out today as we're taping this from Bill Maligan of Fox News, who obtained uh, actually something that the Heritage Foundation obtained. Speaking of people sort of uh, deciding, you know, the moment demands more of the conservative movement, um, obtained via Freedom of Information Act evidence, an email that shows uh, Mayorkas, our, our uh, DHS secretary, was aware 
that Alejandro Mayorkas was aware on the day that he called uh, the images of uh, the Border Patrol agents allegedly whipping Haitian migrants in Del Rio, Texas, horrifying. Uh, he was made aware of an article that quoted a photographer, the photographer who had taken the picture, saying they did not see anybody whipping migrants. Um, it, it's, it was obviously a false narrative from the beginning. I believe it actually began with a Dem staffer, a blue check Dem staffer, who then started getting retweeted by journalists and journalists piled on to the point where the president himself weighed in, um, you know, in, in a way that condemned these border patrol agents um, who were trying to stop Haitian migrants from rushing the border, physically rushing the border and getting into the country. Um, so it's it's kind of an amazing story because I've seen already chatter um, that this is what demands. This is this is more more uh, evidence that Mayorkas should be a target of Republican impeachment efforts. Um, come January, should Republicans control the House, the Senate, or both? Um, that this is more that, that this shows, I think there's a real sort of appetite on the right to immediately start an impeachment process for Mayorkas. Um, and I, I think that chatters is quite interesting because their Republicans believe the border crisis is something that can be sort of by used on a bipartisan basis um, to to create support for policies that overturn or undercut the Biden administration's efforts basically to preside over an open border in effect, uh, not legally, technically an open border, but in effect, basically an, an open border. Um, so Mayorkas is overseeing all of this. He's getting so little heat from the media. And here we have more concrete examples of how they attacked a border patrol agent, people who are putting their lives on the line um, to try and uphold some semblance of law and order on the border despite directives from the Biden administration um, and despite incredible pressures uh, that are, are coming from south of our border, incredible amounts of people. Uh, they're putting their lives on the line uh, and they are being trashed by somebody who knows better. Uh, maybe he didn't read the email who knows? But at the very least, uh, it's more evidence that he didn't do his due diligence before trashing his own border patrol officers who are putting their lives on the line. I mean, it's just disgraceful leadership. And it shows what an incredible stranglehold the sort of woke, the pressures of woke culture have put on Democrats, um, a DHS secretary, right? Like not a, not a, a you know, far left progressive uh, Brooklyn activist, DHS secretary Democrat to act like that, just really despicable. despicable. Um, and so I'll toss it open to the group with that kind of broader framing that, you know, this is this is showing Republicans really want Mayorkas out and uh, may take steps in the future to to get him out. Yeah, I have no other issue, I think, has this administration just been so shockingly it revealed as just liars and it, it's they do it when it's the evidence is like presented to them and they say no that's not happening like literally don't believe your lying eyes like how many times has green jean pierre said from the border or said from the podium oh the border is closed you know kamala harris is like oh the border is secure you know meanwhile the and, and they talk about ron DeSantis engaging in human trafficking sending 44 migrants uh, to martha's vineyard when you have literally a billion dollar human trafficking trade at the border because no one because this administration refuses to do anything about it it is 
maybe one of the top five most ludicrous things I've ever seen in politics. And the fact that they think they can get away with it is just shocking to me. And the, the fact that like, they think we can't see this. Like we see them, we see them lying about these things. Like we see images of 15,000 migrants under a bridge in Del Rio at the same time as Green Jump here saying, oh, the border's closed. The, you know, the border's secure. Like it's just a level of, of, I don't even know what to call it. It's, it's lying, but it's also something else uh, that I don't, I can't, maybe y'all can think of a better word for it, but it is, it's just shocking. And honestly, I think it's a perfect place for House Republicans to engage. You know, I have to hope they do some, uh, engage meaningfully, right? Like bring a strong case against Mayorkas on this issue, because it's not just Mayorkas, it's the entire administration. Uh, I'm not sure how much I have to add. I mean, I I agree with Rachel that there's probably no issue once the administration has been so duplicitous, has been so catastrophically bad. Frankly, has been so catastrophically evil. You know, you know, our, our friend Rob Sharma is down here in in Miami, where I live, for like this this uh, Lincoln Network tech conference. So I saw him last night. I'm probably going to see him again later today to say that we're recording. So I I, I kind of rewatched Rob's uh, NatCon speech from the Miami conference last month to, uh, to kind of just like uh, remember what he said before I saw him. And the way that he phrased it was very well. I don't remember exactly verbatim how he phrased it, but he basically said that the the Biden administration's failure to do anything whatsoever pertain to what is happening at the border amounts to a moral war on the middle class. And that's what it is. I mean, like it, it, it is willfully and, and disingenuously just taking the American middle class, the working class, and just throwing it under the bus, just sacrificing any and any and all of their economic integrity of uh, and not just economic, obviously, but kind of just like their appreciation of, a, of the rule of law, of, of a basic means of what the American way of life is. I mean, I, I mean, legal immigration is obviously just a total mess in of itself. But I guess the broader point here with Mallorca's in particular, and I agree with both of you guys, that there should be probably impeachment discussions pertaining to this just outrageous, this just outrageous treatment of the U.S. Border Patrol, which, you know, which by all accounts and based on everything that I've read about over the years is an agent. Agency that you know in in good repute and in good standing certainly much better than our intelligence community or anything like that I can tell you that but you know look uh, don't let facts get in the way of a good narrative right I mean isn't that isn't that what this is I mean like it, it, this is just like example number like one million four hundred thousand and twenty of like don't let facts get in the way of a good narrative I mean it kind of all comes back to Alinsky I tactics you know the means always justify the ends blah 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 and like to me that's that's very much what's going on here and like their end to be clear. Is you know diluting the American citizenry, stripping them, as Sarab said in his NACON speech, of any kind of moral claim to a decent working class, middle class job, stripping them of any kind of uh, uh, you know uh, of any kind of felty or acknowledgement of our of our proper American heritage, and the ends necessarily justify the means, and here that means just blatantly, blatantly, obtusely lying. It's it's disgusting, and, and it should be called out. Well, I look forward to Secretary Mayorkas claiming uh, he first heard about these emails in the New York Times or wherever, although given that the New York Times, et cetera, probably won't pick up this story, uh, maybe he won't even ever have to address it. Um, I do think there is an irony here. I mean, yes, this is an illustrative episode of, you could argue, certainly on the merits at least, uh, high crimes and misdemeanors engaged in by the DHS secretary who is essentially overseeing an invasion of our borders and not enforcing the laws. Um, But here you have someone who is overseeing an invasion of the borders, engaging in self-flagellation against his own agency, Border Patrol agents, while slandering them as whipping migrants. I mean, that that is the narrow story here. The broader one, I think, to Emily's point is that 
wokeness demands this and the open borders agenda demands this. Essentially, what Mayorkas argued here by engaging in this willful neglect of the truth and putting forth this spurious narrative is that we shouldn't have any border defense, that they are morally in the wrong to be defending the country. And of course, they didn't do so in the gruesome way that was depicted here. Uh, and his arguments essentially are aimed at destroying the morale of the agents or certainly could destroy the morale of the agents. Who's going to defend a border when you're accused of being a racist and a bigot for doing so? And that, of course, will only lead to uh, future increases in illegal immigration into this country. So on every single level, this is despicable. I will say, and maybe this is something that we should broach in a future episode, you know, the notion of impeachment. Obviously, you had multiple impeachments of the prior president. Is impeachment the remedy that Republicans should be using as the best way to gain accountability for these officials? And do we think that Republicans will actually win uh, the, the public discourse war on impeachments? I, I've seen articles out there suggesting that Democrats are kind of licking their chops at the notion of Republicans engaging in impeachments in the next two years, should they take the House and or Senate? Uh, maybe it's something that's worth talking about, fleshing out a little bit. You know, what are the lessons of past impeachments? And is this a remedy that Republicans ought to pursue for a whole slew of individuals? Uh, I, I would gather, assume we'd probably be all think and Republicans have certainly discussed it when it comes to the subject of our next segment, which I'll jump into uh, when it comes to the attorney general of the United States. And, and so to that end, let's jump into it. And we might have a little extra time that we can discuss these matters in parting thoughts. I want to talk a little bit about the burgeoning argument that I think is substantiated by what we've seen, that there's a double standard being engaged in with DOJ and FBI in pursuing pro-lifers while taking a completely hands-off approach to those who are pro-abortionists. And there have been a couple of very high-profile cases that have really illustrated this of late. The first being that of Mark Houck, who is a pro-life activist a father, I believe, of seven. He faces a two-count indictment for allegedly twice assaulting a man. Now, his attorneys claim that the purported injury that he inflicted against this individual, who was, I believe, escorting someone to an abortion clinic, uh, was that he needed a Band-Aid. Uh, that individual claims he did require a hospital care. However, the fact of the matter is that by all accounts, this there was an altercation that Hauk engaged in with an abortion clinic volunteer, actually, in this case, uh, who got into a spat and apparently had been harassing verbally Hauk's 12 year old son. Uh, at the, So they got into an altercation and he allegedly pushed this man down after telling him to lay off his son. Local officials at the time refused to bring charges against Hauk. So the charges are being brought now by the DOJ a year later against this individual. Now, the scandal over this has intensified for a couple of reasons. First, the show of force that federal authorities engaged in, reportedly 15 police vehicles and 20 law enforcement officers, including many with ballistic shields, guns, and a battering ram, descended on Hauk's home uh, to detain him. Also, it's been revealed by several Republican senators that his attorney, uh, from the Thomas More Society had informed the assistant U.S. attorney that he would accept summons on Hauk's behalf and that Hauk would appear voluntarily prior to this raid on his home. He faces potentially massive charges under the FACE Act, and so do 11 other pro-life 
protesters who were indicted for alleged face act violations, some of them for conspiracy as well, since they organized this protest in question on Facebook uh, for protesting at a Tennessee abortion clinic also last year. Some were arrested that day and released on misdemeanor trespass charges. According to video evidence from the protest that they engaged in, these Christian pro-lifers spend most of their time peacefully praying, singing and crying in the hallway leading to this facility. This cons conspiracy suspects face up to 11 years in jail and fines up to $250,000. Tucker Carlson interviewed one of them whose house was raided by FBI agents. Others had their houses raided by FBI agents armed uh, to the hilt. Uh, and so there's a question of, you know, why? Is this proportionate with these uh, uh, misdemeanors, at least alleged by local authorities that were dismissed in real time, but then a year later, these individuals are now indicted by the feds under the FACE Act uh, and facing very serious charges here. Uh, also, on a smaller note, there was an individual outside a Planned Parenthood Center in St. Paul who was questioned by FBI agents over an alleged altercation months back as well for which charges were not brought. Uh, so there would seem to be a pattern here. And I think it's ironic, by the way, that if you go to the DOJ's page and look at this FACE Act, it says, the FACE Act is not about abortions. The statute protects, I'm quoting from this page, all patients, providers, and facilities that provide reproductive health services, including pro-life pregnancy counseling services and any other pregnancy support facility providing reproductive health care. So that leads to the question, attacks on the other side, on pro-lifers, are they being prosecuted by the DOJ? And as Josh Hawley raised in a letter on the How case, he notes that there've been 104 incidents of extremist violence against pregnancy resource centers, churches, and pro-life Americans since the Dobbs leak, attacks including firebombings and arsons. Uh, an 83-year-old woman was shot while engaging in pro-life activism in the last several weeks as well. And Hawley says that despite my repeated requests, you still, and this is a letter to the DOJ, have not identified a single prosecution the Department of Justice has taken in response to this epidemic of violence against pro-life Americans. That, of course, is on top of the non-prosecution of those individuals who illegal, illegally protested in front of Supreme Court justices' houses on grounds of opposing, at the time, the pending Dobbs decision. And according to reporting out there, um, basically, the FBI has said, you know, they are investigating a series of attacks on and on threats targeting pregnancy resource centers, et cetera. But to date, there has been not one prosecution. And so this leads to the question of few questions. Why are they bringing these charges now? Do we think these charges have any merit? And I think based on the facts of these cases, probably not based upon at least our limited understanding of them. Why does the DOJ feel a need to go after pro-lifers while protecting abortionists and particularly, you know, 60, less than 60 days out from a midterm election? And what does this portend? If you're going after pro-lifers and not prosecuting uh, pro-abortionists who engaging, are engaging in real acts of violence, what does this mean for a whole slew of other issues coming down the pike in the future? I kind of turn it over to the group for your observations and takes on any or all of those questions. Well, I think it's pretty obvious that the DOJ, at least on this issue, is sort of in the thrall of the abortion lobby. I mean, this seems to be, at least to me, a response to the Dobbs ruling, right? The, the DOJ and Merrick Garland and the Biden administration saying, oh, you know, the Supreme Court's going to, you know, give states the ability to decide their own abortion policy, then we are going to performatively arrest people for minor, like, impossibly minor violations of the FACE Act, which... John can correct me if I'm wrong, but basically says you can't impede people's access to an abortion clinic. And if you saw the video, I think I think it was one of the 11 people that was arrested 
recently by DOJ, if you saw the video of what they were doing, they were literally singing hymns in front of an abortion clinic. Like it, it was so, you compare that to like the car dealership on fire and, you know, DC that burned for three weeks in 2020. And it's just, it, it, it boggles the mind. And it's frankly insulting uh, to people, I think, to say that this is a crime worthy of armed guards and flak jacketed DOJ uh, or sorry, FBI people showing up at your door and and one in, one is a peaceful protest. I mean, it's, it's, it's absurd. It's ridiculous. And it, the last thing I'll say, too, is it's ridiculous how the corporate media has covered this, because I've read so many stupid stories about how Merrick Garland is so loath to politicize the DOJ. And he's been thinking very carefully as he's about to freaking indict Donald Trump and is arresting peaceful pro-life. Like, it, again, it's like. I can't even fathom how stupid it is to, to live in this moment because people are just telling you to to believe things that are just facially untrue. Um, so, uh, I mean, but overall, this is a terrible, like the DOJ has been so politicized beyond recognition. I think it's going to be hard to get it back. You know, yeah, I say, I'll, I'll go, go, go ahead, Emily. Uh, like super quickly, I just find this absolutely terrifying. That's pretty much all that I have to say. Like this is extremely frightening. And if you don't see similar pushback that we mentioned uh, from people like Judge Ho, from people like, gosh, Larry Fink, um, then this is the kind of thing that just steamrolls uh, everyone. And has you know, like this is this is one of those things that is is genuinely very very frightening and needs to be pushed back against so strongly by Republicans um, because this is basically how it ends. Look, I mean, I don't think we should forget that in the aftermath of the Dobbs abortion leak, which, by the way, we still don't know who, who leaked that, which is kind of an, an independent and sorry topic. May I'll come back to that in final thoughts in a few minutes, actually. But if you go back to those weeks in May after the, the opinion was leaked, you know, the firebombings started, the firebombings of the pro-life pregnancy centers all across the country started. There was one in Madison, Wisconsin, if I recall. I think there was one in upstate New York and Buffalo, New York. We covered it on this very podcast. And at the same time that the Department of Justice was completely silent, Merrick Garland and all of his flunkies and acolytes, apparatchiks were totally silent on the firebombings, these acts of wanton violence, of bloodlust against pro-life pregnancy centers. At the same time, he was openly and nakedly defending the so-called free speech rights of those to go right outside the homes of the justices and try to nakedly intimidate them in direct violation of another federal statute. You know, that our friend Mike Davis pointed out back around that time, there was a direct statute on the books. I don't remember the exact cit citation, 18 U.S. Code something, but there was a direct law on the books to prohibit, to prohibit people from literally trying to intimidate Article Three judges and justices to change their mind on a case or controversy before their court based on this sort of tactic. So, I, you know, to put it mildly, this part of justice is obviously is transparently not uh, committed to upholding the the sanctity, the neutrality of the rule of law here. The broader point, and you know, kind of the the, the, the like the edgier point, I guess, uh, and something that I've certainly been kind of hammering for a few years now, is that what I just said, this idea of like a truly neutral rule of law, is probably just a liberal fantasy. Um, you know, for left liberals and right liberals alike. You know, I hate to be kind of the bearer of bad news here, but um, it, it is virtually impossible uh, to to necessarily try to kind of uh, in, independently kind of 
choose to enforce certain statutes and you're balancing obviously with the scarcity of resources how many line prosecutors do you have what is the worst possible offense now this doj has been as bad as i have ever seen i mean truly i mean merrick garland i think is even worse than eric holder in this respect and that's really saying something going back you know, as Ben has written for Newsweek and many other places, going back to the critical race theory uprising uh, in, in the October memo uh, from last year, 2021. But looking forward, you know, looking forward for the next time Republicans retake power, they cannot and should not forget what the left is doing here. And what I what I mean by that is that, again, within the bounds of kind of, um, you know, the, the the take care clause, your oath to kind of uphold and defend the Constitution within the confines of, of, of basic norms of prudence as well, we should be doing more or less the same thing. And what I mean by that is basically trying to protect and secure the rights of the deplorables, the dehumanized, subjugated people who are being stamped out from this state corporate fusionist tyranny all across the country. And we should be seeking some sort of retributive measure for the next time we take power, if nothing else, to rebalance the pendulum from being as wildly off-skew as it is. I mean, again, Abigail Schreier had this Substack post months ago that we discussed on this podcast where she where she basically came to that same conclusion. She basically said, if nothing else, to try to rebalance the scales here, you know, some sort of tit-for-tat engagement is warranted. I think the context for her was Ron DeSantis versus Disney, if I recall correctly. But this is what we need to happen the next time the Republicans retake power in, in D.C. I can't say I'm particularly optimistic that it will happen here, but we, we absolutely, absolutely cannot forget this grotesque, this grotesque weaponization and prosecution of political enemies and mollycoddling of political friends. So with that, uh, let's open it up for final thoughts. So I actually, in my final thought, I want to kind of try to answer Ben's question about, you know, impeachment being a meaningful exercise and even get to Josh's question too, about like what Republicans can do about this should they take power? Because I think as a purely as a, a a pure question of congressional strategy, a lot of this is actually going to come down to spending. And what I mean by that is this: we are going to be facing a divided government. Like Joe Biden is still going to be in the White House for the next two years. Republicans have the ability to throw down on all of these fights in the appropriations process. And what I mean by that is like. Congress is responsible for funding the government. Right now, they do it in these like massive omnibus bills that nobody reads and no one debates and there's no, you know, meaningful amendment process at all. But if Republicans are in charge of even one or both chambers, appropriations is all they should do because in those bills are something called riders, the direct funds that prohibit funds uh, that can to the extent that you can make policy by withholding or forcing funds, that's how you do it. They can withhold funds from the DOJ. They can withhold funds from you know certain offices in the FBI. They can withhold from, funds from DHS, and they can address some of this border stuff. Like this is where that fight needs to happen. But historically, Republicans are so loath to do it because they're like, we don't want to shut down. Uh, you know, we don't want to engage in these politics. I'm sorry. This is where the this is the only thing they're potentially going to be able to do. Because any legislative effort they put forward, Joe Biden's probably going to veto. Um, and so this is where the fight needs to be. So if these, so much of this policy is is just blindly passed by Congress and, and not given a second thought because they back these omnibus bills up against Christmas or up against the August recess, this is where the fight has to be. Appropriations should be all they do and every Republican office should be prepared to address these problems via this process. And if they're not, like if they're just going to do an impeachment process, that's, I mean, it's fine, but it's very showy. This is an, this, they can actually get stuff done via this process. They just have to be willing to throw it on and do it. Um, so I, that I have been 
talking to everyone who will listen to me about an preparation strategy. And so I'm now using this venue to talk about it as well. Yes, Rachel, nobody doubts that you've been talking to anybody who will listen to you about an appropriations process. Uh, no, I, I think it's a that's an interesting point because my final thought is basically just about incentive structures because this is what has gone through the course of the entire conversation we had here today. And oddly enough, I was reading um, Facebook's plan for Meta on the Meta website. I guess Meta's plan for Meta on the Meta website. And it's about how they're launching Meta for Microsoft Teams. Right. They want to integrate it within like the next year or two onto Microsoft Teams. They're working on Zoom integration. They're bragging about all of this in a press release. Uh, the incentive structures need to be such that this is a dud with consumers, that this is a dud with uh, employers. And it's the same thing when you start rounding up pro-choice, I'm sorry, pro-life activists for on, on very, very, very thin and dubious allegations and charges, the incentive structure needs to be that that would blow you uh, like out of contention for promotions, for elections, for any of that kind of stuff. Um, and that's, I think, what's what we're seeing shift. And we don't know how durable it is yet. Um, we don't know if this is something that continues on, but that's why it needs to get uh, harder and stronger. And that, that we will start to see in January if the Republican Party um, has sufficiently shifted since 2020 uh, to the place that it needs to be. So I said that I would probably talk about the Dobbs leak, but I think I'm actually going to shift gears here. Um, to be clear, we need to find who leaked the Dobbs opinion. I feel like I'm one of the last people who remember that there was this catastrophic leak. I mean, the, you know, the, where's the whole norms crowd, right? I mean, the whole like my norms crowd. I mean, unbelievable. All right, but I, I, I do want to talk about something unrelated. So Rachel and I this past weekend, um, we're out of the Restoring the Nation conference in Steubenville, Ohio. I want to just flag one thing. I'm pretty sure the videos in this conference are going to be public. I want to flag one thing that J.D. Vance said in what I thought was his really excellent keynote address that the Saturday evening at that conference. And one thing that, that J.D. said in his remarks was I think he was reminding the audience there, was reminding kind of you know all of us and kind of uh, the so-called new right really kind of um, at large – that while co-optation of our project into kind of a fusionism 2.0, that co-optation into the so-called dead consensus that that famous March 2019 First Things Manifesto, I think so eloquently decried, that while that co-optation is a real threat, you know, the very nature of building coalitions, the very nature of kind of, of building anything that is meaningful and sustainable and durable necessarily entails making political allies and friends who do not necessarily agree with your take on literally every single issue under the sun here. And again, while we need to be wary, as JD said in this speech of kind of this entire kind of project between kind of NatCon and Claremont and, you know, the, the political economy stuff from American Affairs, American Compass, while we do need to be very, very, uh, you know, uh, on guard, we need to be very, very, very careful of not just all this just, just disappearing from the face of the earth. I mean, you know, the, the 2016 election was like a real thing. I mean, like Trump's changes to the GOP paradigm, uh, you know, and tapping into the voter base on trade, immigration, foreign policy, and so forth. This is a real thing. But we have to be willing, I think, to kind of get along a little better with those of us who, who properly express skepticism of the status quo ante, of kind of the dead consensus that that first things piece famously referred to. And, you know, it was just really well said. And I'm really, really proud of J.D. Vance for saying that. And I look forward to this video being public so that all of us in kind of the broader new right space can kind of hear it from him himself. So I'll put a bit of a capper on my segment and then talk about kind of the broader implications of it. 
Uh, it's worth noting also that we got a revelation this week regarding the FBI stemming from the beginning of the Denchenko trial, which we've talked a bit about in the past, that Christopher Steele, uh, the man behind the infamous dossier or dossiers, was offered up to $1 million by the FBI to corroborate his lurid, asinine, absurd conspiratorial claims about Donald Trump's uh, purported treasonous collusion with Russia. So that was our FBI in 2016, offering him up to $1 million. And then, of course, as we know, they paid Danchenko, his key subsource behind the dossier, to be a confidential human informant to take him out of play and to protect the FBI itself from the fact that that dossier was really at the heart of the entire Russian collusion probe, and that if the dossier was false, the whole probe shouldn't have existed. It was the ultimate fruit of a poisonous tree. Um, so just in the annals of FBI, DOJ corruption here and a double standard in their pursuit of ideological wrong thinkers, that was the first massive example, I think, that we've seen from this regime uh, that has cast uh, a million assaults on wrong think in this country, although obviously it predates uh, 2016 as well. And I think the 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 attacks on pro-lifers protecting abortionists, you know, I think shows now that you can rattle off a, a handful of issues now where whether it's federal authorities, massive corporations, social media companies, schools or any other institutions of power, any or every lever of power is being used, oftentimes with these institutions colluding with each other to oppose those who dare challenge radical gender ideology, environmentalism, CRT, COVID, now abortion, election integrity, and I'm probably some missing, uh, missing some other issues there as well. Certain stances that one might take on foreign policy or national security might also get one thrown in the digital gulag or worse today. And so I think what this illustrates is the task for particularly politicians, because while everyone fights like hell in civil society for our positions and to try to beat the other side or win over the other side here. Ultimately, there have to be protections for those who hold dissenting views on any of these issues because there are going to be a million sacred issues for the left, ultimately, and you're not going to be able to dissent on any of them, and not just the left, of course, but our uniparty establishment. So the first task to Republican lawmakers, and if there are any Democrats still out there, and I don't think there are, especially after you look at Tulsi Gabbard's leaving of the movement yesterday, uh, or this week, rather. The fact of the matter is there need to be defenses for those who dissent here, or you have no country. And then just creating that space for dissent, that is the only thing that will enable ultimately a triumph and some form of refounding of this country. It's the only way. So once again, this points to the fact that one has to know what time it is. One has to expect that it won't just be PayPal potentially dinging people for misinformation. It can be every financial institution, every single web service provider, every single service that we use potentially can be weaponized and probably will be weaponized against us. So it's incumbent upon those who believe in defending some semblance of the American way of life to come up with a defense now, not tomorrow, but right now. Um, so on that note, on behalf of Josh, Emily, and Rachel, thanks for tuning in. I'm Ben Weingarten. We'll see you at the next NatCon Squad.